Hi. All right, we got one bit of time left with each other. Let me start by saying thanks for such a fun weekend, for taking care of me and my kids and my family. You might have seen my sister-in-law walking around with all five kids. My brother was up here, too, to help, and his wife were as well. Um, here's my, I'll show you a, a little bit of my family, if you've never seen them all in one place. There they are. I know you're thinking to yourself, why did Chris Silken choose the thug life? And the truth is, I did not choose the thug life. The thug life chose me. Uh, that was our Christmas card from last year. Turns out when you lose your wife, all common wisdom about what you should or shouldn't do for a Christmas card goes out the window, and you get to end up choosing whatever you want. So I chose The Rock uh, in his uh, turtleneck from the 1980s. And that's how we do stuff. So there's Peyton's my oldest, and then Harper's on the left, and then Brady's got the glasses, and then Leo. Um, we told him, look hard, and he opened his mouth like that, like a weirdo. And then there's my daughter Finley up there. That was last year. Uh, and then here's a picture of, there's my wife, Paige. Um, she is just pretty stunningly gorgeous. Okay, we're going to take that down or else it's going to get all teary up in here. The, anyway, so that's kind of the background of my family. And so I appreciated getting to hang out with you guys. You've been so respectful. Um, your questions have been really helpful, and I can just tell how much you're engaging with the content, and uh, that's meaningful for me as a teacher, and I know for your youth leaders and youth pastors as well. So we end with a short conversation about the difference between what a lot of you have experienced historically with camps is your experience with Jesus is more or less this roller coaster, right? You have highs and you have lows, and you have not found the secret of the beauty of the depth of relationship. And, and, and here's what I'm talking about. Um, when Paige and I first got married, it was 2013, we went on our honeymoon then that next week, and um, we were out on a kayak because my, like, there's two different kinds of people. Those who vacation um, and think that vacation means you go and do every possible activity that that place allows you to do, right, which is not really vacation to me, Okay. Some of you are like that. You're like, let's go, to, let's go to Mexico and let's go look at all the old temples and let's go hike Mount Doom or whatever is in Mexico, right? Like <laughs> Mordor. And let's have so much fun. And we're gonna, we have our whole itinerary filled out and everything. And it's like, bro, I want to get somewhere far away from where I live. I want to sit poolside with a good book and a nice cold soda and just like <laughs> chill. And I want to work out maybe if I feel like it one day, but I want tacos and I just want to, hang. that's like how I want a vacation, you know? My wife uh, was one of those, like, let's go do whatever. So there's like El Arco there in like Cabo, like this big arch made of stone. It's not going anywhere, but we needed to go see it up close. Like, babe, we can Google, like, uh, someone has taken a 4K camera to the arc and examined it. We can watch it from the comfort of our bedroom, but no, let's go brave the waves and the cold wind and go find El Arco. So we went out, we're on our way there, and this big fishing boat starts coming right at us in our boat. And it was really confusing because it wasn't turning. And as it got closer, my wife went like, that thing's gonna hit us. And I was like, no. Like, we're the only other boat out in the ocean because it's dead, that today sucks. Like, there's no one else out here. Of course they see us. Long story short, that boat ended up hitting us. <laughs> and with about four seconds left, my wife was like, I'm jumping. And I'm like, Last week you committed, for better, for worse, for richer or poor, to never leave me, and now a boat comes near us, and you're like, I'm sorry, <laughs> hope the propeller doesn't hurt too bad, and she just jumps. 
And they hit our boat, and then they kept going. The guy looked back at us like gringo, right? And he just like kept going. And so like our accoutrement, like uh, my, I can't find my cell phone. It's somewhere in the ocean, so, like sunglasses, which are like $5 Ray-Bans, like the knockoff brands I got on the beach from the guy that was selling them there. And, and, but I'm just so frustrated. And so we're like having to like tow our kayak back, like swim it back because it's not exactly the best place to try to get back in a kayak is the middle of the ocean. Um, so we're like, you know, and I'm like, okay, so the shark's going to eat us. Like this is like the beginning of the end for us. And, uh, and as, we, <laughs> as you go about and do all these things, you, you have these moments in your life, moments in your relationship. And I remember early on, even dating in marriage, like we were at the Irvine Spectrum the first time I ever tried to hold her hand, right? So we're like going to go see this movie, which ended up being a terrible movie. But we're like, uh, I, we had to park on the top because it was really crowded. And I like reached in my pocket and I was like, hey, Paige, can you hold this for me? And then I went, oh, no. And she... And my heart was right. Stop it. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, but your heart like races, right? But your heart races for a number of reasons. And, and, and for some reason, those moments are so like exciting and they're, and they're so anticipatory, right? Like the night before you're like, today's the day I'm going to hold her hand. You know, or like tomorrow's the day, like I'm going to tell her that I like her or I'm going to ask her out on a date and, and you do all these things. And, and the reason that they're so exciting is because the result is unknown, right? When you're first in relationship with someone, the result is unknown. And so trust is not established. And what's funny is the thing that we chase in new relationships, right? Like that's, that's, that's the way that like longer marriages get pinned. Like most of us would not watch a documentary about a Christian marriage in its 40th year. You'd be bored out of your mind. It would be like healthy communication, like mutual submission, love for one another. For sure they're gonna have disagreements, but they're gonna come to a solution quickly. They're gonna be having sex on a regular basis. They're not gonna be weaponizing it. Like this is, the, 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 this is what's gonna be wild for you in your brain. Self-reported study in 2020 found that people in, in uh, sororities and fraternities who were, not, uh, who were secular, who did not believe in God, reported that their sex, life, that their sex lives were significantly less meaningful, enjoyable, and pleasurable than long-term married couples who are in their 20, 30, and 40th year of marriage. They're reporting higher levels of sexual satisfaction after 20, 30, and 40 years of marriage than the guy who's just trying to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, with whomever he wants. He is reporting that, that his pleasure in those things is actually lesser than that. But it doesn't make press, right? We, don't watch, we want to watch Jersey Shore. We want to watch, watch disasters play out. We want to watch The Bachelor where people are all like, for the first time, they're like, there's 30 of us and one of us might get broken up with at the end but we're gonna call it an engagement. This is so exciting. But they all think that it's them and their hearts racing. And we watch it because we wanna watch new love. But why do we wanna watch new love? Why do we wanna watch new affection? Why do we wanna watch new romance? Because it's a train wreck, right? Because at some point, everything's gonna be going really well. And then one of them is like, oh yeah, and by the way, like, uh, I don't believe in water. And the other one's like, what? Right? Like, this is what you find out. Or someone's like, oh, yeah, my dad doesn't really like you. And you're like, what? Right? It's, it's, it's unstable. We love unstable. And the more unstable our relationship is, we get, we get it confused with excitement. And we confuse excitement and instability and a lack of trust with somehow being uh, more romantic. Right? That's what you hear people say, I, I, I miss our, that newlywed feeling. 
But when you really think back on it, when I think back on like that day where we got hit by that boat and everything, we went back to the hotel room after that and we were like having conversations and my wife cried at one point and she's like, I was like, why are you crying? And she's like, it's just so different than I thought it would. Like marriage is just so different than I thought it would be, right? And so she found herself and I found myself wanting those, those highs from before everything happened, from before marriage where everything was more inconsistent and more unsteady. And then if you stick through it, you find out this is the best thing possible. Like, I remember when um, we used to go to, like, 24-hour fitness, I would have to, like, get on machines near her so that if any guy ever went near her, I could dropkick them. Like, when I first married Paige, I got a black belt in Taekwondo and a black belt in Kung, or a black sash in Kung Fu in the, in the first two years because I was thoroughly convinced I was going to have to kill someone. <laughs> but I also was so insecure. So I would walk around, right, and some, like, blind guy would literally walk by, and I'd be like, hey, hey, hey. Don't, what? Okay, you're blind. I'm, I apologize. That's, like, that's, that's on me. That's on me. That's on me. I apologize, right? But that's how insecure I was, right? It could be like a 96-year-old woman walking by my wife, and she'd be like, you look nice. I'm like, she looks what, Grandma? She looks what? <laughs> Go do your Pilates. Get out of here. Get on with lifting weights. We know why you're here, Ethel. Get over there. <laughs> and the reason, the reason, like, and we forget that. We just, we just remember there being that excitement there, but we forget the insecurity that comes along with it because you don't know how they're going to respond. I get worried because she's going to go to the gym and, and, and find someone else, and, and, and then she's going to realize that they're better than me, and then she's going to do this, and she's going to run away, and we're never going to see each other. After nine years of marriage, she'd be like, I'm going to Vegas this weekend with my friends, and I'd be like, let me give you some extra money just in case there's like a nice restaurant you want to go. Why? The insecurity is gone because the depth of relationship and we know each other inside and out and we've built such deep trust that now, like in our ninth year of marriage, if, if we were like in a restaurant, this actually happened not that long ago. My wife was pregnant. We were in Bakersfield, which is where I, I grew up a lot of my life. And uh, we were at this place called Eureka Burger and I was teaching um, at a camp I was getting back, and my, my mom was like, just so you know, while you were gone, this waiter hit on your wife a lot. And I went, <laughs> he's so stupid. Why would you hit on my wife? You're going to get the cold shoulder like you wouldn't believe. She's got four kids at this point. She's pregnant with her fifth. And if she was even remotely, remotely disgusted by you, I would drop kick you from here to next week. And so it was, it, it, you're right, like, you're like trying to draw water from a rock. Like it's just not gonna work. And so I end up feeling bad for these guys. I'm like, oh, you poor schmuck, right? Like the idea that someone like you would catch the attention of a beautiful, powerful woman like my wife, like look in the mirror, bro. It just like you're, and it's not even his looks. It's just like, you think my wife's going to pay attention to a guy who hits on a girl at Eureka Burger when he's had too much to drink? You think that's going to turn my wife's attention? You don't know the honor and respect of my wife. And so it becomes more laughable. And see, our relationship becomes more steady. And at the beginning, you're having these arguments that turn into, they, they get louder and they fluctuate and, and you're, you act childish. You don't know how to respond to it, right? You give them the cold shoulder. And then by like year nine, you have these arguments and they last for five minutes and you end up making a joke about it afterwards and it creates no insecurity and you have all your stability. And sometimes when it comes to God, for a lot of us, the power of knowing God is you'll develop a relationship with him that for a lot of us, we'll go home from camp and we'll go, I miss that camp high. 
I miss this. I miss, and so what you do is you sign up for camp and you go to Hume Lake and you have a spiritual high and you go home and you don't know anything about healthy relationship with the king of the universe. You don't know anything about st- stability or about security of the truth of his word and his will and his church and his love for you and, and his omnipotence and his omnipresence and his presence in your life and his desire to know you and to be known by you. You don't take those things seriously, and so you end up seeking, you're like lily padding, like mountaintop to mountaintop experience throughout your life, but you've never created depth in your relationship. The problem is for a lot of you guys, as juniors and seniors, you're running out of camps. Like, what, what are you going to do when you're all out of Hume Lakes? What are you going to, you might be out of Hume Lakes right now. But what are you going to do when you're out of those things? If you haven't developed and, and learned the skill of a healthy, consistent relationship with God, then you are going to be going from emotion to emotion, from the pit to the valley to the mountaintop to the, the beauty of a healthy relationship with God is it really does start to look like this. Most of the people that you respect in their relationship with God they're not going to show up as your counselors or youth pastors and go like, I just really haven't felt God lately. I'm really in a really weird spot with him. Or, like I, or last week I went and, and I went and partied really hard because I just didn't feel God's presence anymore. You're going to find this consistency. And it's not boring. It's consistent. Consistency in your relationship with God is something you can build a whole life on. But because you have experiences like this weekend, you're going to think this is what the presence of God feels like. It feels like hype and emotion and since love's got a hold on me. And you're going to go back to your own, like some of y'all high school bands, they're amazing, right? Uh, where is it Jacob? Right, right, when he sings, you're like, okay, yeah, yeah. When he sings, I'm like, mm, is there an angel harmonizing in this room? Right? But some of our high school bands, right, it's like, you know, the, the, the best thing we got, it's going to sound a little bit scratchy, a little bit off key, but that's the best you got. And you're going to crave, like, I just wish I had that human-like experience. But you're going to associate the emotional high with the presence of God. I got a newsflash for you. The Christian life is lived mostly in the valley. That's the power of Psalm 23. Here's what it says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me by, beside still waters for his name's sake. Yea, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows and I will walk and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. C.S. Lewis said it one way. He said, we should not be shocked as Christians that we have poor experiences in life or that we experience pain. We should instead be shocked as Christians if our life ever has a moment of serenity or deep victory. That's what should shock us more because the Lord promised us our life would be covered in pain. But if you associate God's presence with the mountaintop, you are easy pickings for the enemy to say, I don't think God's around you anymore. Because remember what it felt like when you were at Hume, when you knew God's presence was there? It doesn't feel like that now when you're back in Manteca, when you're back in the, the Central Bay, when you're back in Santa Maria, Santa Clarita, Visalia, wherever you're from. It, if it doesn't feel like that anymore, what you're going to think is God must be absent. But friend, no. Everything in our life that is most consistent is what we're least aware of. Think about it. Like your posture right now. Every time I say that, it's fun for my stage because everyone goes... 
right? Why? You all know you have a spine, but you go, oh yeah, I should probably take care of it, you know? (laughs) Or like your breathing. Have you ever like taken your breathing off of autopilot before? I'm going to do it right now. Everyone take your breathing off. Put it in manual for a minute. Just, everyone just got COVID, (laughs) right? You don't even think about it. But every once in a while, you're like sitting in bed at night, like thinking the deep thoughts of mankind, like, if peanut oil comes from peanuts, where does baby oil come from? And then you're like, <laughs> then you're like, oh man, I gotta breathe. Oh no. Then you're like, you can't sleep because you're like, take back over, put it back on autopilot. But then you're like suffocating because you're like, oh yeah, breath in, right? <laughs> this is who God is. This is how God reveals himself. Guys, even when you read the Bible, the Bible spans almost 4,000 years. And there's about three or four pockets in all of scripture where miracles are happening. There's about six people in scripture who perform miracles. Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Jesus. Like, it's, it's a long book for very few actual miracles. But when we read it, we go like, this should be popping up everywhere. They're called miracles for a reason. We see a list of a few of them in a span of 4,000 years. But the consistency of the Israelites walking with God through the desert and into victory and into Canaan and into the promised land, most of those people never get mentioned in scripture. And the majority of their life is spent working with their families, living in community, being upset by their churches and getting over it. This is what Christianity looks like. If we continued last night when we were talking about the gospel, the next place I would have had you turn is Romans chapter 12, and that's how I want to uh, end our week together. Romans chapter 12. We walked through Romans Road last night. Romans 1, there is a God. He's revealed himself through creation. Romans chapter 3, but there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 6, 23, the wages of that unrighteousness is death. That's hell, eternal, apart from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By punishing the perfect, he is able to not punish the imperfect. We trade places. His righteousness becomes my own, and my sin has become his. He became sin who knew no sin that I could become his righteousness. What must I do in response to these things? Romans 10, 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So now that we are walking with Christ, now that we are saved and sanctified and justified and that we are on track with him, this starts a new process that the the, the scriptures calls discipleship. Now, don't get this twisted. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6 23 makes it clear. Uh, For the wages of sin is death, but the, what did it say? Oh, it's it's up on the screen. Yes. The wages of sin is death, but the, how how expensive was your salvation to you? Free. How expensive was your salvation to Jesus? Cost him everything. Salvation was won for you as a free gift. Discipleship, which is the process by which you remain in Christ until the day that you die, is that free? No, it will cost you everything. Salvation is free. Sanctification is expensive. Salvation is free. Discipleship is expensive. 
when you listen to Jesus talk about following him for the rest of your life, when you listen to Paul talk about following Jesus in the middle of our culture, here's how he references it. He says, following God is like being a farmer who wakes up early before everyone else is up and they, they till and they plow and they toil in the field to reap a harvest. Following God is like an, it's like an athlete who runs a marathon and he must prepare their body for the race that, is, that lies ahead of them. They're like a soldier. They don't get twisted up in civilian affairs. They keep their eye on the mission and their eye on the prize. When Paul talks about remaining in Christ, he uses the analogy of a boxer who beats his own body and makes it a slave that at the end he might be found one with Christ. Salvation is free. Discipleship will cost you everything. And here's what the text says. Romans chapter 12. Verse 1. Therefore, uh-oh, we got a question to ask. What is the therefore, therefore? Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, I'll, I'll use this since you guys are reading this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So the first 11 chapters of Romans is talking about God winning salvation for us through his life, death, and resurrection. Romans 12, you see how it's after? You see how obedience, sanctification, and discipleship proceeds from salvation, not the other way around? You see how it was won for us first, it was given to us freely, and then there's an expected response to that? Do you see how it doesn't start with Romans chapter 12? Hey, if you're willing to follow God, he might die on the cross for you. Hey, if you're a really good person, hey, if you follow him, then he might sacrifice. That is backwards. Because of what he's done, therefore, our response is, by the mercies we've received, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and, and, pleasing, and, holy and acceptable to God. You guys know what an oxymoron is? It's two unlike words that are often grouped together, right? Plastic glasses, jumbo shrimp, winning Chargers fans. Like, there, there are two phrases that go, that are actually not the same. Who loses to the Jaguars? I don't know. The Chargers do. Okay, fantastic. Since there's no Chargers fans left, I'm pretty sure I didn't offend anyone because no one cares about that team anymore. Now they really don't because they just lost to the Jaguars. Trevor Lawrence with his long old hair just busted you for 31 points in the second half. That's embarrassing. Anyway, whatever. That's not important. That's not important. That's not important. That's not important. We're running out of time. Living sacrifice is, it, it's an oxymoron. A sacrifice in scripture is something that you put on an altar and you kill. And it's a sacrifice. So how could you be a living sacrifice? Ah, here it is. You have died. What, is, what does 2 Corinthians 5 say? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. You have put death to your old self, and now you are alive in Christ. That's a living sacrifice. My will, my volition, my future, what I want, what I think is most important, is put on an altar that God could use it, that my life would now be lived for him. I'm a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. And here's where the crux takes place. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you can know what God's will is, his good and acceptable and perfect will. The word conform, here's what you need to understand about your brain. Your brain is neuroplastic, okay? That means your brain's like Play-Doh. That means that your brain has the ability to conform to whatever you consistently put in front of it, Okay? That means if you consistently hang out with people who think and act a certain way, your brain adaptively will go, we should start thinking and acting like this, right? 
That's like when we use the phrase that someone gets used to something. Your brain is able in its neuroplasticity and its neuron, neural connections can rewire itself to make things more natural. Like, like Stockholm Syndrome. It's people who get abducted by kidnappers and then end up falling in love with them. Why? Because after a while, after their captors tell them again and again, you're safe, you're healthy, you're loved, you're here, you're mine, they start to believe it after a while. This is the way that God made our brain. Why do you think God made our brain neuroplastic? Because before sin was in the picture, God built our brain to consistently rewire to him and to enjoy him and to worship him. Revelation chapter four says, and and continuing in, in chapter 19, it says, for all of eternity, God is constantly making all things new. The problem is now that we're in sin, whatever you go home to, your brain, it's like jello and whatever mold you put it in, it's gonna shape to that. So if you put your soul which is who you are, if you put the spiritual life that you have, that you've, some of you made a decision for Christ up here on this mountain, or you want to follow Christ for the rest of your life, if you put your soul in a jello mold of this world, it will conform to the patterns of this world. If the jello mold, if, if you place your time and energy and efforts and relationships and friendships, and it's all people, and it's all relationships, and it's all energy, and, and it's all actions and behavior and thought processes and, and axioms of this world, you will become like the world. Conversely, if you consistently pour yourself into the mold of who Jesus is and being around his people and being in his church and being in his word and communicating with him, you will, conversely, shape yourself into the image of Christ. And you don't have a say in it. All you can do is place yourself in these positions and your soul will mold to them, always necessarily. Always. That's the way that we were built. So my question to you is if you want this weekend to be anything more than a flash in the pan or like a Katy Perry, baby, I'm a firework. That was great. That was a great weekend, right? But that, that could be your whole spiritual life because the Bible's warning you, if you go down the hill and expect to go back to the same things that you were doing before in the life before you were a new creation and thinking that you, the jello, are gonna change the mold around you, you're wrong. You can for sure be a light to them, but we are too weak. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says the, the, the spirit is willing, but his body is weak. Paul talks about this all the time, Romans chapter seven. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do all the time. The Bible says this, do not be conceived. Do not be conceived. Well, you you don't have a choice. Um, (laughs) Do not be deceived. The Bible says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Big decisions often require big incisions. An incision is a cut. It is a cutting something out in your life. And so here's my challenge to you. I'm going to finish by talking the same way that I started talking to you, like adults. Some of you need to go home and break up with your significant other. Okay? And, and the reason that you, look, and if your pushback to me was like, that is a price too high to pay, this is what Jesus says in the book of Luke chapter 14. He says, how many of you, if you went to build a building, would not first understand how much the building costs before you begin to construct it? Because if you don't, you're going to have the first three stories built of a 10-story building. You're going to run out of money, and then the wind and the waves are going to take over that building, and you're going to lose your whole, every part of your investment is going to be gone. Likewise, Luke 14, verse 28, what commander of an army sends off part of his army to war 
and doesn't first calculate how many men he's willing to lose in order to accomplish that victory. In the same way, you must count the cost of discipleship in your very own life. There is a cost to following Jesus, not to being saved by him. That's free. But if you want to finish the race, listen to what the heroes of scripture say. They say, I beat my body and make it my slave. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. I'm like an athlete. I'm like a farmer. I am like a soldier. This is the attitude we must have towards the diligence of finishing the race in Christ. And as a youth pastor, I guarantee you the most difficult part of your youth pastor's life is that he will watch generations and generations of people who make decisions for Christ get plucked up by this world and get turned apart from God and they never saw it coming. Because they just went from high to high to spiritual experience to spiritual experience. They didn't actually incise the thing that's gonna pull them away from him, pull them away from God. And they always thought, I am not apt to fall away from God. But here's what you need to understand. After, after high school, three out of four people who have made a profession for Christ before the age of 18 will fall away from the church. Three out of four. If I were to ask you in this room, how many of you think that you have made a decision for Christ and you're following him and you think it's going to be you that falls away from God? Very few of us would raise our hands. Some of us just for attention. Some of us because we don't follow Jesus anyway. But very few of us, when I sat in your chair, I would have never been like, sounds like me. I'm one of the follower awayers. That's the deception part of it. We don't think it's going to be us. But if you don't start doing the things and changing your lifestyle to grow this relationship with God and create a consistent, stable foundation, you are going to go from high to high to new experience. You're going to get to college and your professor is going to push on your belief system just a little bit and you're going to fold like a house of cards. You're going to, get, you're going to fall in love with some girl or some guy who doesn't want anything to do with Jesus and you're going to flirt to convert. But listen to this, my friend. The reason the Bible says you must be equally yoked with someone else is because the way of the world when things get difficult is more enticing than the way of Jesus. No one ever backslides into sanctification. No one ever backslides into a deeper relationship with God. Have you noticed that? If you look around at your leaders and you find who's got the deepest relationship with Jesus, none of them will say, I don't know, man. I wake up, I do my thing, I don't think about him, I don't pray to him, I don't read his word. We have a great relationship. Where you find great relationship with Jesus, you will find diligent and disciplined people who know that if you're going to spend 167 hours in a week being invested and poured into by this world and one hour a week in church, you're screwed. You are making Romans 13, 14. There is no provision for the spirit there. There's only provision for the flesh. So let me challenge you. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to take this seriously, if you want to breathe your last breath and look around you at a family of faith that has been raised up because of your decision that you have made this weekend, if you want this to mean something more than a flash in the pan and a Katy Perry firework weekend, if you want that, what must you remove from your life to consistently walk with Jesus. You see, the word that the Bible uses again and again for the beginning of a relationship with Jesus is repent. That means to turn around. To think that we can come up here and make an intellectual ascent that there is a God and I'm going to follow him and go back to the same way that we are living is an absolute practice of futility. It's not going to work. I must beat my body and make it my slave that I may be found in Christ. For all of us, that's going to look different. That's the challenge I want to give you 
from now in your breakout sessions with your small group, maybe you guys are meeting again this week as a church, and that's the question I want you to answer. Big decisions often require big incisions if we want to keep with them. You want to lose a bunch of weight? Got to get rid of something. You want to get better at sports? You got to get rid of something else. You can't play 13 hours of Fortnite and be the best at your school in some sport. It's just not going to work. And you might, you might go to a school of three people because you're homeschooled and you're the best one there. Fantastic. Go to college, you're going to be a nobody. We all understand that if we want to make a big change in our life, it always comes with big incision. What is it that God's calling you to remove? What's, what is that God's calling you to begin what new disciplines must we inhabit and what old things must we cut away so that the new creation can remain the new creation and we don't go back to our old way of being? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for making our hearts new. Thank you for that free gift that only you can give and that you can only win through the sacrifice of your cross, through the death, burial, and resurrection. But God, in response to that, you call us to something great. You say, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, prepare to die, and follow me. God, we're sorry as a church for when we've set the bar of discipleship so low, or we haven't warned people that following Jesus will cost us everything. Salvation costs nothing. Discipleship costs everything. May we be prepared to offer our bodies as living sacrifice. And Holy Spirit, would you prepare our hearts? Would you speak to us and show us the places of incision that need to be made? If it's a relationship we need to get out of, if it's, a, if it's an internet program we need to install to keep us away from websites that pull us away from you, if it's friendships we need to end, if it's sporting things that we do that constantly draw us back to things of this world, would we have the bravery and the courage to give up in these 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years of life we have left to enjoy an eternity with you? That is an investment that is worth making. It's in your name we pray.